again, fellow travellers, and welcome to podcast 135 in our series, You Should Have Been There, with me, Mick Webb. And me, Simon Calder. And this December, the RMT Rail Union has given new meaning to the phrase, the 12 days of Christmas, with a dozen strike days between the 13th of December and early January. And after the PCS Union announced eight days of strikes by UK Border Force staff at six UK airports, the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, has helpfully suggested we all stay at home, saying, I really want to urge people who've got plans to travel abroad to think carefully about their plans because they may well be impacted, which of course misses the point that a lot of people travel in order to be where they consider home at Christmas time. Anyway, in this podcast, we'll endeavour to give a more rounded view of the obstacles and opportunities in store for the traveller at what's supposed to be the jolliest of periods. Well, jolly cold is how it seems to me at the moment and jolly annoying because I've somehow managed to catch COVID. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, Mick. And to cap it all, England have, of course, succumbed to their uh, customary fear of the penalty in Qatar. But it's not all about me. Um, Let's look back at some recent correspondence from listeners. First of all, thanks to Julesy, who responded in the following way to the question that was added by Anchor.fm to our podcast, A Touch of Class, asking what people thought of it. Excellent as ever, writes Julesy. I look forward to each new episode. And that is very encouraging. And thanks again. Uh, yes, and thanks also to Juliet34, who said, listen with interest to your latest podcast. I'm not a business traveller and I actually don't work for a business, but I've deliberately taken cheap business flights and taken advantage of double tier points, holiday deals and reduced TPs. That make is tier points to reach BA Gold Lounge access for two years and other perks. <laughs> it's it's like a kind of computer game, isn't it? Well, when I looked at the <laughs> tweets, I was bewildered by all these colourful references to gold, blue, silver. I think there was even green to describe where people, that's particularly business travellers, of course, find themselves in the pecking order of loyalty points and executive membership categories and even tears, I gather. But uh, there is one thing that is clear. Everyone loves an upgrade. You might recall that I asked our guest, Rob Burgess, founder of the frequent flyer news site Head for Points, whether casual upgrades were still a thing, or whether this little lottery win was becoming increasingly unlikely. Uh, Yes, basically. It's it's very unlikely to happen. There are... (laughs) A few reasons for it. The the boring reason is that technology now makes it far easier for the airlines to control and oversee the number of tickets they're selling. But back back when the IT was less less good, for one of better way of putting it, you know, it was, with people selling yeah. tickets in different channels, not everything being reconciled centrally, it was easier for airlines to accidentally oversell and therefore be forced to upgrade people because there's simply too many people turn up for economy flights. Well. If you haven't heard podcast 134, and I urge you to upgrade your life by listening to it now, Rob went on to explain that airlines are getting smarter about overbooking in economy and also profiting from selling their empty business seats. And I was intrigued to learn that British Airways Gold Club flyers 
actually have, even in economy, the seat next to them ideally kept empty to protect them from hoi polloi like us. Um, anyway, we've had a flurry, an avalanche and other festively appropriate ways of saying lots of tweets about upgrades. Well, Elaine Golding says, a shame that these uh, upgrades are disappearing. Our first trip to Australia was upgraded to business for oh. the leg to Singapore. Oh. It it was lovely. And uh, Alex Kilby reports that he got lucky as well. Myself and my four-year-old recently got bumped up to business on an Aer Lingus flight to Washington, D.C., Happened at the gate for reasons I'm still unclear of, but was happy just to nod and go with it. Well, I found I was not very, very, very not upgraded on my Aer Lingus flight to Chicago from Dublin, but I strongly recommend pre-clearance of US border um, formalities at Dublin Airport. So you just um, get on the plane and get off at the other end and you're uh, free to go wherever you want. Anyway, Ellie Bond tells us that upgrading can be a smart marketing move on the part of the airline. She says, I was upgraded from premium economy to business on a long haul flight home from Buenos Aires. I fly a lot and I've never flown long haul economy since. They converted me, so it has a monetary purpose for the airline. And if you're canny about dates and using rewards, it can be affordable. While Call Me Frank argues it's more a question of who you know. Most free upgrades, he says, our crew, family and friends need to know the senior cabin crew or one of the pilots. Ah, I'm uh, making a note here to send a Christmas card to Mark Van Hernacker, who was the uh, guest on our podcast number 114 of Pilot's View. A very interesting look at what pilots do when they actually arrive in some far-flung destination. Andy Andy, in another tweet, contends that the airlines being better at exploiting empty seats in business class is surely a good thing. We need airlines to be profitable. When flying in economy, I need as many fair-paying first and business class fares to reduce pressure on economy fares. I suppose that's one way of looking at it, Andy Andy, but it doesn't really help the argument for um, protecting the climate, does it? Which tends to point in the direction of fewer planes, more expensive fares and no business class. Yes, I, I agree. But it does take me back to the 2010s, the golden years where the airlines were making so much money across the Atlantic, particularly selling business class seats at £10,000 a go, that actually they really didn't care how much they charged in economy. And I was traveling for typically £300 return pretty much any time off peak. Now it's at least um, 50% more, often very much more. Um, Call Me Frank actually reposted to uh, Andy Andy by saying, when business was used by business passengers, airlines could rely on that. They now need the wealthier leisure passengers. I don't think that's you or me, Mick, to take up the premium fares to make up for the drop in business. That's an interesting point, uh, Call Me Frank. Meanwhile, Sharon Kearney reports, these days, some airlines are more likely to oversell business class. I was offered $1,000 to sacrifice oh. my business seat from Brussels to New York JFK in <laughs> September. Uh, that's uh, nice work if you can get it. 
And, and yes, on a daytime flight, which they all would be, um, yeah, getting on for 800 quid for um, moving slightly further back. I, I think I would, uh, I, I'd do that. Anyway, a better experience than happened to Sarah Kitchen from Northern Ireland and her family. They were split up en route from Belfast via Heathrow to Orlando. Two of the kids, aged 18 and 16, were put in a taxi to Dublin Airport and flown on an entirely different flight. And this happened in June, and the airline has only just paid the compensation due for overbooking. That is disgraceful, isn't it? And uh, what happens to you seems to be the luck of the draw, doesn't it? Or the bad luck of the draw, as in Sarah's case. But a question to you here, Simon, from another Simon, Simon Bennett. If you have checked in and have a seat number, can you still get bumped off the flight? Well, um, Rob Burgess, our frequent flyer expert, says that it's unlikely unless there's an aircraft change. Oh, Say right, they have yeah. to downsize a plane from a Airbus A321 to an Airbus A320. Um, however, um, this, this overbooking still happens. It's still generally a benign thing as long as they do the following, which is um, Simon Bennett, Simon Calder, Mick Webb or whoever has a boarding pass printed out at a seat number. And they are supposed before anybody is voluntarily overbooked, which is what happened to Sarah Kitchen's family, they're supposed to appeal for volunteers and i always put my hand up and and say yes of course i'll take a couple of hundred quid not to travel on this flight so yes you i, I try to get bumped off a flight um but only in return for for cash that is surreal and i suppose it could be a job couldn't it um you know in which you sort of like the um flying dutchman or something you travel oh. round and round the world constantly being bumped off flights and making enough money to carry on flying around the world. Well, uh, yes, you, you're right, because the last time it happened to me, which was at Salt Lake City Airport, and it was fantastic. I think I got $600, so you know, £500 pounds just for travelling a, a few hours later. And the uh, guy there, who couldn't have been nicer, said that, yep, earlier in the week they had an entire family of four who got up to the thousands of dollars they kept being overbooked and put on another flight and that was overbooked and they take the upgrade and so on so yes it indeed it is a great way to well i, I see I, I suppose see the inside of um salt lake city airport but um, amass lots of money for well perhaps treating yourself to a business class seat one day well let's go on to the other end of the scale i mean you must have been um, upgraded um accidentally or involuntarily on numerous occasions uh, what's your best one <laughs> It happens very, very rarely, and it's mostly to do with what it says in my passport. So, for example, I was in Havana flying to Grand Cayman, a distance of, well, it's over 20 minutes in the air. And the only place that the lovely check-in lady at Havana Airport had been that wasn't in Cuba was Crawley because she'd been flown over for a course at Gatwick Airport. So she saw I'd been born in Crawley. Her eyes lit up and she said, um, Senor, I'm going to put you, or compañero, uh, comrade, I'm going to put you in seat 1A. And so for 20 glorious minutes, I enjoyed a slightly wider seat and I think a glass of um, something which might have been orange juice. A much better upgrade in terms of um, being some hours actually happened um, one Christmas. I was flying back from Montreal to uh, Heathrow and 
at check-in, the um, agent said, oh, um, I see, it's your, your birthday. Um, happy birthday. And uh, here you are. Anyway, we still love your upgrade stories. Uh, you can get in touch with us um, through Twitter at you should have BT or leave us a message, um, a voice message, which we love at anchor.fm forward slash you should have been there. You know, I was thinking about another one of our recent podcasts, the one on greener travelling options and decisions. And our guest uh, then was Anna Hughes of uh, Flight Free UK. And if Anna was here now, I'd ask her, if we're to be persuaded to use trains more than planes or conventional cars for that matter, why are some trains so incredibly uncomfortable? And I mention this because, and this is possibly where I call COVID, I got a um, a train, a Thameslink train from Blackfriars in London all the way to um, sunny. Well, actually, it was extremely sunny and extremely frosty Cambridge. And uh, at the end of the journey, I actually felt as though I had spent a night out uh, uh, in the Pyrenees um, without any kind of lilo or mattress. (laughs) My back was so stiff. And I thought, well, if you'd taken the whole journey, because this train, quite an interesting one, actually goes all the way from Brighton to Cambridge. I wonder if you'd actually be able to walk at the end of it. And so I'm going to ask you, seeing as Anna's (laughs) not here... How can this be? Oh, it can be because that's exactly what the Department for Transport, which actually controls pretty much everything on the railways these days, specified. Yep, ironing board seats. They are incredibly uncomfortable. They're perfectly good for a you know, quick hop of 20 minutes or so on um, what's called inner suburban uh, trains. They are completely unsuitable for, as you say, you know, the full two and a half hour stint from Brighton to Cambridge. You need something more comfortable. But uh, unfortunately, that is what we got. They will say things like, oh, well, we've got a you know, fire regulations. We can't have uh, too much comfortable padding. I, I think that's a lot of old nonsense. And uh, in the railway world, people are always harking back to the 20th century when everything felt a lot more comfortable, even if it was perhaps um a little slower than today anyway time for our christmas guide an advent calendar with a difference what's happening in travel between now and christmas day should we sort of do it by weeks do you think uh, that will work very nicely, yes. Um, so from Monday the uh, uh, 12th of December through to Saturday the 17th of December and actually going on into Sunday, there's going to be a week of disruption caused by uh, two 48-hour strikes by members of the RMT union. Pretty much as soon as that's finished, an overtime ban begins, which means that, for instance, on Chiltern Railways, the entire network stops at Banbury. You won't be able to get a Chiltern train to Warwick, Leamington Spa, two Birmingham stations, Kidderminster, all sorts of uh, exciting places. Then we get into a couple of things. Christmas Eve, um, there's another strike four days by RMT members working for Network Rail. That coincides with festive engineering works, which are going to take you right through to the 2nd of January. 
And then, well, another week's worth of strike disruption begins with the RMT. That's just on the railways. And if you're flying, well, of course, you've got the strike by members of the PCS union working for the UK Border Force. Basically for uh, eight days, that's the 23rd to the 26th of December and the 28th to the 31st of December. If you're flying into Gatwick, Heathrow, Manchester, Birmingham, Cardiff or Glasgow, you are going to um, have an interesting time because you might find a soldier is checking your passport and he or she is taking a a little longer on that. So um, a huge uncertainty for passengers there too. Do you think that the government is likely to um, reach any sort of accommodation or probably in their terms to actually chicken out and um, give way in any way Uh, to these uh, very uh, to these uh, often very reasonable demands? That's my own personal opinion. Well, no, and actually we saw this um, Sunday the 4th of uh, December, um, just as we thought there was going to be an agreement between the train companies, who actually are being, you know, all the shots are being called by the government, and the union, suddenly they threw in the great, uh, incredibly controversial issue of so-called driver-only operation. Um, And either that was a dreadful miscalculation because they thought, oh, well, the union is desperate to settle, so we'll chuck this in as well or i think more likely it was a cynical way to make sure that the union wouldn't agree and that these strikes would go ahead so i'm afraid it is going to be a bleak midwinter for train travelers it does sound um, depressingly like a um, a song from the margaret uh, thatcher playbook um, involving the miners in the 1980s but um, let's look at the um, roots of uh, of travel at Christmas. And obviously at the heart of the traditional Christian Christmas is a journey. Um, Several, in fact, as various travellers tried to make their way to Bethlehem. Now, according to an article I found in the LA Times of 1995, (laughs) so it must be true, um, this was the sort of thing that faced Mary and Joseph on their journey. Um, I decided not to include the wise men or the kings, as uh, there's um, a lot more sort of uncertainty around as to who they were, whether they existed at all, or certainly Um, where they actually set out from. But in the case of uh, Mary and Joseph, a biblical scholar called James F. Strange um, says that uh, we have no idea how difficult it was. Their hardships would have begun more than a week before the birth of their son when they had to leave their home in Nazareth in the northern highlands of Galilee to register for a Roman census and they had to travel 90 miles to the city of Joseph's ancestors which took them south along the flatlands of the Jordan River then west over the hills surrounding Jerusalem and on into Bethlehem. It was a pretty gruelling trip said uh, Strange and uh, in antiquity the most that people managed to travel was about 20 miles uh, a day Um, But this trip was very much uphill and uh, downhill, and uh, they would probably have only managed 10 miles a day because of Mary's impending delivery. 
And the trip through the Judean desert would have taken place during winter when it's in the 30s during the day and rains like heck. That's what um, Strange says. Um, It's nasty, miserable, and at night it would be freezing. And uh, to protect themselves during this inclement weather, they would probably have been uh, wearing very heavy woolen cloaks constructed to shed the rain and the snow. Um, And uh, apart from the unpaved hilly trails and the harsh weather, they would also have faced um, the possibility of attack by lions and bears who lived in the woods and even wild boars. And... uh, Archaeologists have unearthed documents warning travellers of the uh, forest dangers. Um, They probably have joined a trade caravan for protection and uh, they would have taken with them wineskins, which carried water and lots of bread. Uh, Breakfast would be dried bread, lunch would be oil with bread and herbs with oil and bread in the evening. Um, And then, of course, they've got to try and find accommodation when they get to Bethlehem. And that all sounds really extremely daunting, doesn't it? And Simon, as our wise man of travel, I wondered if you'd be able to tell us how this journey would look today. Nazareth to Bethlehem. Actually, very straightforward. The national bus operator in Israel, which is Eged, will take you from uh, Nazareth through to Jerusalem in about two and a half hours. It's going to cost you 16 shekels, so that's about four pounds. Um, from there, you get another bus to the tomb of Rachel, whereupon you go across the checkpoint and into Bethlehem, where by all accounts, there will be lots of taxi drivers waiting, or you can just walk a couple of uh, kilometers into town. So uh, the bus actually from Nazareth to Jerusalem is a good two and a half hours. So if if the checkpoint doesn't hold you up too much, it would be about a three-hour trip and um, uh, should be, um, from my experience, of bus travel in, um, in Israel, um, very comfortable. But uh, coming back in across the checkpoint from uh, the Palestinian territory into uh, Jerusalem is always a bit of a uh, pressure point. Oh, yes, I'm sure. Um, and what about accommodation? Presumably an upgrade on on a, a stable or maybe even a cave, I think, some people uh, believe they had to stay in. Bless you, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. And, and how very appropriate. Um, yes, the uh, the Shepherd Hotel, which is uh, says it's a four-star, not really sure, but um, uh, you can get a room on Christmas Eve into Christmas Day, and that's going to cost you £68. Um, and that includes breakfast. And from the pictures I've seen, it looks um, uh, perfectly comfortable and nice. So, so that's a good place to wake up on Christmas Day. And what do you think the breakfast uh, would have been? We've seen that um, Mary and Joseph were probably stuck with dried bread, oil, and bread and herbs. I, I imagine it would be a very good Middle Eastern breakfast. Lots of flatbread, remember some hummus, maybe some fool, um, and uh, lots of uh, fresh, fresh tomatoes and so on. My mouth is watering at the very prospect. I think I'll have to make do with the, our own equivalent of the fool: um, beans on toast. <laughs> Well, next week, we're going to be talking to Jean McNeil, who's director of the University of East Anglia's prestigious creative writing course. And we'll be asking her about fictional travel. And I'm looking forward to that because we do tend to um, think of uh, travel literature as being a, a very factual kind of thing. 
But what about all those um, great fictional works of creative imagination? And uh, if you need some suggestions for podcasts listening to entertain you while you huddle up or cuddle up under the duvet this week, I can heartily recommend our own back catalogue. There's lots of it. For instance, podcast 115 about armchair travel, which I'm going to recommend to Suella Braverman. Um, And in fact, you can find all of the episodes listed at anchor.fm forward slash you should have been there. All one word. And what better Christmas present than to send a friend or loved one, or indeed the Home Secretary, the link not least because it's entirely free. Anyway, from now until next time, from me, Simon Calder. And me, Mick Webb. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.